Hi, welcome to Help with Parkinson's podcast number 17. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Dr. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you, Warren, again. Um, glad to be here again. Yeah, our topic today is apathy and uh, th- that it occurs in Parkinson's. And the definition of apathy is a lack of interest or the attitude of not caring. So apathy is a well-known and disabling symptom in Parkinson's and appears to be multidimensional, having many facets. Dr. Soup, could you go into that in a little more detail? Yeah, so um, we are learning more and more about apathy and other non-motor symptoms. As many of you know, uh, the way the disease was defined uh, almost 200 years ago was primarily motor, and we focused on tremor and slowness of movement, loss of balance, and something called rigidity, where uh, a physician or, or a nurse practitioner or a physical therapist will actually feel for the muscle tone, and you'll, they'll actually detect that there is an increased muscle tone in patients. Now, that still defines Parkinson's disease, and you don't diagnose Parkinson's disease without those cardinal features. But what we have learned more and more is that besides those cardinal features, there are many other things about Parkinson's disease. We had a whole program about non-motor features. Uh, We had a podcast about that earlier on. But one of the lesser known or lesser um, characterized version of the non-motor symptoms is what is called apathy. Now, apathy itself is somewhat a controversial area because there are many who argue that apathy can overlap with depression. And one of the features of depression, which is called dysphoria, and dysphoria is sometimes also called anhedonia. All these words, they're all Latin and Greek uh, words that have been incorporated into English language, but they all have very specific meaning in the, in the medical field. Um, given that um, overlap, it's important that we talk a little bit about those differences. So one of the common things that many of us experience when we are a little bit down is a lack of interest, what we sometimes call anhedonia. This is extremely common uh, when somebody is depressed or down. Um, The classic example is a spouse says, let's go out, and the the, uh, other partner says, no, I don't want to do it. Want to go out to eat? No, don't want to do it. Uh, General lack of interest in doing anything and lack of getting any pleasure out of things. So in general, if you are a person who used to go out, meet people, make friends, socialize, um, or occasionally go out to a movie or have certain hobbies that gave you fun and enjoyed, um, in some cases even uh, having interest in the opposite sex or Um, having an interest in watching movies or watching um, sports. And then you lose this interest and you become disinterested. And you also don't get any pleasure out of it. This is sometimes called anhedonia. uh, And this is part and parcel of depression. Now, very closely related to it, but very different, if if you pay attention close to it, is another thing which is called apathy. Apathy means... Not really a lack of pleasure, but um, a lack of interest in making a real effort to do something. 
Um, if you're pushed, you might do it, but if you're not pushed, you simply say, I don't want to do it. So for example, if a person uh, is anhedonic, that person would say, I don't want to go out at all um, or plan an event at all. Uh, whereas a apathetic patient would defer the planning to somebody else. Oh, do you want to go out? Okay, let you do all the planning. You do all the work for it. I'll just come along. You know, I'll just ride along. And that is the difference where um, a apathetic patient simply defers decision-making, and that can be in multiple domains. It can be at an emotional level, you know, deferring decision-making. It can also be at executive level, meaning actually doing things, uh, things that they would like to do and they did before, but now they're basically saying, eh, you know what, I'm not doing it. Somebody else do it. Um, but if you ask them, would you, would you be willing to do it, and you force them to do it, they would actually do it and they actually get pleasure out of it. They'll, they'll enjoy it and they'll do it. But that inertia, sometimes a common word that people say is the inertia, lack of interest in initiating things and doing things and motivated to things. This is probably the simplest example of, of apathy that, that sometimes um, people experience. Um, another way to think about it is um, so novelty seeking. So, um, in general, human beings like to see new things, discover new things, um, whatever that might be, like traveling to a new place that they have never been to or seeing a show that they have never seen before or learning about some new, new activity of some kind, even if it's a simple thing as a board game. You know, if you're, you played a particular board game for a long time and somebody says, hey, here's a new board game, let's play this new board game. And the the... There is no interest in or motivation to seek this novel thing. So novelty seeking becomes uh, somewhat um, reduced. Uh, the other version of apathy is emotional blunting. You know, again, um, somebody normally has a gregarious personality, laughs a lot, smiles a lot, jokes a lot. Uh, and now the same person now becomes uh, somewhat less emotional but not to the point that they're actually crying, weeping, sitting in a room and being very sort of uh, depressed. They're not truly depressed, but they just have blunting of their emotions. Uh, they have more flat facial expression, not smiling as much, um, and usually not expressing their emotions as, as clearly as they used to be before. And then there's also this last aspect, which is called a lack of self-awareness or metacognition. What that means is um, in an inability to uh, sort of understand where you are in the context. So example would be if you are in a room full of friends, if there was a joke going around um, and it's a sort of a social innuendo that's going on, you quickly adjust and you realize that, okay, that innuendo is going around. And um, you then relate to it. You kind of say, wow, okay, that, that's going on. Let's kind of, you know, get out of it. Uh, sometimes you get to a situation where a pathetic person does not catch on um, on that uh, kind of a social uh, joke that's going around. Uh, this can also happen in certain parties 
where, for example, uh, a Halloween party where everybody comes dressed up in some way or the other. And the, this, this person just simply doesn't catch that that is actually the plot of the party, that you're coming to the party and you just don't kind of get it that uh, you're supposed to come in a costume for a Halloween party. You just kind of walk in and you're not self-aware and you lose that self-awareness. And that would be don't care attitude. I don't really care whether I go in a Halloween costume or not. Um, that would be sort of an example. So I gave you some extreme examples of apathy. Not always is it so black and white. Sometimes it's a bit more subtle. And this is why a doctor, a physician, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist is probably much easier to understand what apathy really means and how that is different from depression. Although there is clearly some overlap and it's very difficult for a layperson to make the distinction between anhedonia and apathy, both of them can look very similar and sometimes it's hard to make that distinction. I hope this kind of helps lay the ground. What do you think, Warren? Yeah, it's very good examples. We're thinking of it as a boulder in front of a Parkinson's patient that they have to push out of the way to do something, kind of a follow the same pattern that you were talking about. Right. So it's, yeah, sort of, you know, it's kind of, it's not a physical boulder, but more of a mental lack of, um, not just a boulder, but also, like I said, the example of novelty seeking, you know, like doing something unique and interesting, going out and doing some activities, which normally human beings are very, very interested in doing novel things in general. Um, so even the most uh, docile person, when something dramatic happens in front of them, they react to it. So um, if they see a movie in which there's a, uh, some very action figure comes in, there's a lot of noise and a lot of action happening, even the most um, even-tempered person has an emotional upsurge when they see that. And that's something that gets dampened in an apathetic person. So no matter what happens, you become a little bit sort of, eh, you know, I don't know, I don't really care about this kind of thing. Uh, and that uh, sense of lack of uh, interest in things and showing an emotional reaction to it is sometimes um, often an indication of apathy. And is it true that it really hurts the uh, caregiver and the family members more than the, the patient? The patient pretty much is fine to sit there and do nothing. They don't feel like they're missing okay. something. Right. So uh, it's, it's not unusual that the caregiver is the one who first notices the difference, especially a spouse who has been around with the, the person for a long time. And that may be the charm that the lack of apathy or the interest, the novelty seeking, the, the pleasure seeking, etc., are the ones that probably attracted the spouse to uh, the person the patient. And when that goes away, it, it kind of surprises them and they feel like that little charm is not there anymore and that little spark is not there anymore. And that bothers them. And usually they are the ones who first complain to the doctor. You know, he doesn't look the same way. He doesn't act the same way or she doesn't do the same thing. She's, she's a bit more um, not as emotional as before. There's a slight personality change. These are common complaints that, that patients have. Now, we talked about last podcast of, of doing the heel-to-toe walking mm -hmm. that sets up the little, little computer programs in your brain that you get used to it. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to get used to 
a family function that let's say they every Wednesday they go out to dinner and if they go out to dinner every, and repeat that would the would the patient actually get used to that and and be less apathetic to do that well that's a good question um actually i don't know the answer to that um uh, what whether making a routine having a, a dinner date every certain day of the week would actually um shake somebody out of their apathetic mood or whether there's other types of uh behavioral modifications that can actually make um the the problem go away um there's probably a good setup to talk about the two papers that we wanted to talk today um and if you're okay with it Warren I'll just yes. go out right into it great so uh the first paper that just came out um very recently uh in 2018 uh the first author is Radakovic um and uh, it comes from Richard Davenport's group in um Edinburgh uh, Scotland and these investigators looked at apathy and uh, in Parkinson's patients. And the way they did it is that from a single center from this Edinburgh um, unit of the uh, uh, National Institute of Health in, uh, in, in England, they recruited uh, roughly about 30 patients uh, who have Parkinson's disease and then asked a series of questions about apathy using a standardized tool. Now, it turns out that these investigators had used the same tool, a questionnaire, which they had tested in other diseases, um, Alzheimer's disease and in ALS. Uh, both these diseases also neurodegenerative. Uh, there's brain cells that die in both these diseases. So they wanted to check whether what they had shown in these other two diseases are also applicable in Parkinson's disease. So they recruited subjects and they also had age match uh, controls. And they did these questionnaires. And what they showed is that clearly there was um, apathy and to a higher degree compared to controls in Parkinson patients. Now, interestingly, uh, the age group that they actually tested are um, 68 uh, and above. So clearly this is the standard Parkinson's age. As most of you know, Parkinson's usually starts around the age of 65. So they had a rough, rough uh, age group of about uh, 68.2 years of age, plus or minus 9.2, which is ballpark uh, roughly um, 62, 63, something like that. Um, most people were 68 and about. So, and, and the second thing that they also did, when you look at their group of patients, they were all uh, fairly advanced patients. They already were in stage two, which means they had disease on both sides of the body. Um, and their, uh, their age of onset, the age at which their disease started, as I mentioned already, um, was a little bit later than uh, some of the patients that might be listening to this podcast um, who have young onset PD, uh, who might have had the disease before the age of 60. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. And uh, this is important to keep in mind when also we talk about the next topic, which is how long did they have the disease? before they were tested in this manner. And the average duration was four and a half years. So again, let me summarize what I just said. The age of onset of this group of people was 68 average, and they had the disease duration of four and a half years, and they were already in stage two, which means they had bilateral disease, um, which is kind of a little bit of a surprise. They also don't tell us in this study 
about how much Parkinson medication they were taking and whether they were in good control or not. That, they don't say that in the study. But what they did show when they checked uh, this group of patients is that clearly the apathy score, and they did this using this particular scale, but clearly the, um, the patients had more apathy. And uh, when the patients themselves rated their apathy, they did less than what the, the caregiver did. The caregiver or the informant, when they scored, um, they scored it higher. They said the apathy was worse. But the patients themselves said, eh, you know, uh, now we don't see any uh, uh, as much. So they underestimated their own apathy, whereas the informant, you know, sort of maybe a little bit overestimated or maybe were more objective about detecting this, uh, this change. So the main conclusion from, from this particular study, which looked at um, all these uh, issues, was that when they looked at the patients um, in the off state, meaning without medicine, and on state with medication, and they looked at the differences, they saw that in both on and off, they had almost the same amount of um, differences, and they didn't think that uh, there was a huge um, standoff between the two uh, things. Uh, this suggested this paper suggested that uh, medications itself, Parkinson medication itself may not have um, such a big influence in apathy because in their view, the two did not seem to be um, that big a deal. So in their N of 13 and N of 11, which means they had 13 patients with off medicine, on medicines and 11 patients in the off medicine, and there was only six patients who were not on any medicines at all. Um, they, they looked at the scales and they said like, okay, there's not a huge difference between them. Now, this brings up the question, does really Parkinson medicines have an influence on apathy or not? And that brings up the second paper. And the second paper um, is in another uh, study that was also done in England, also included about 30-some patients, and it's published in a, a bit more stronger journal called Brain, and uh, it comes from a different group in a different part of the United Kingdom. Um, and they did something a little bit more interesting, uh, in my view. They took the same patient, and the same patient was asked to do the series of questionnaires off medication, and then they were given the medicine, waited for two hours, and they repeated the test two hours later on the same patient. So this kind of study, which sometimes we call before and after, is you take a Parkinson patient, tell them not to take their medicine overnight, come first thing in the morning, um, do the series of tests, like the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, where we ask you to tap your finger and um, get up and walk and uh, tap your foot, etc. That test was done, and that showed that the patient was uh, depleted of dopamine, not completely, but less than if they took their medicine. They answered the bunch of questions uh, using this uh, validated questionnaire, um, including they checked for depression and so on and so forth. And then they gave the medicine, waited for two hours until the medicine kicked in, and then repeated the test again. And what they were able to show in their paper, uh, which is also quite interesting, is that indeed the Parkinson medication did not seem to completely take away 
the um, apathy scores, meaning apathy was still somewhat blunted even when the medication was working. Now, again, the population that they tested were older, 68 plus. They also had disease for approximately four or five years. Um, they were also in stage two, well, bilateral, both sides of the body was already affected. Um, and they also uh, put in how much levodopa they were taking. So they were taking roughly 600 milligrams of levodopa. So for those of you who know carbidopa, levodopa, it comes as 25 slash 100. So most of the patients were taking a minimum of six pills a day, which is a little bit on the higher side if you think about it. Uh, most people in the early stages of disease will take maybe four pills a day. Uh, and maybe when they are more advanced, they might take up to six. So there was an indication that these patients were taking slightly higher doses of medicine. And they also published their UPDRS scores, uh, what the scores were uh, in, 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 in that group. And that, that also indicated that uh, many of the patients were in slightly more advanced stages of disease and the scores were slightly higher. Um, and those were the caveats with the paper. And one other thing which was very interesting in their control group versus their patient group is that the patients had more depression. So then they asked the question, okay, is the apathy related to dysphoria or anhedonia? The, the, the point that I made at the very beginning of this podcast, where people confuse between the lack of seeking pleasure versus the lack of interest in doing things or making decisions, taking decisions or seeking novelty. Um, they wanted to ask whether that really influenced. So they used another scale called the Beck Depression Scale. And within the De Beck Depression Scale, there is a subscale for dysphoria. And what they showed is that the dysphoria scale was actually not very different between the apathy scale and the dysphoria scale. So to make the long story short, what these investigators showed by doing these studies is that it may not be 100% dopamine that plays a role in causing apathy. There may be other hormones in the brain, particularly a hormone called serotonin and another hormone called acetylcholine, which may actually be the key player in causing um, apathy. And so we as doctors and uh, listeners who are patients and caregivers uh, we need to look at it carefully. Now, having said all this, um, we also have to pay attention to the fact that depression is much more common than apathy. So properly treating depression with antidepressants, and since they are readily treatable, the medicines are very, very effective. Uh, patients who are taking their antidepressants, which are, by the way, mostly acting on the hormone serotonin, may indeed be a key and important aspect of this whole area about apathy. Uh, Warren brought up a very interesting um, comment, which is, can we create exercises, whether it's mental exercises or social exercises, that would actually add on uh, to the idea of getting rid of apathy? Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, I certainly will look into it, but uh, that's a great idea. And in theory, is easily implementable uh, in a situation where you can say, okay, like uh, Warren said, Friday night we're going out no matter what, and uh, it becomes a routine, and people actually 
uh, decide to go. And uh, that decision-making is a little bit more uh, compelling for the patient to uh, sort of seek novelty or say, okay, I'll go to this restaurant. I won't go to the same restaurant every time. I'll go to a different restaurant and I'll check out new cuisine or uh, check out something new. That might be the way to overcome some of this um, anhedonia, but that's certainly area of research. And I certainly uh, wouldn't know whether that actually works or not. So uh, I hope I gave a little bit of a short summary. Uh, if something yeah. was not clear, Warren, please do ask questions. So Sure. So is it possible that this is working outside the substantia nigra? Like I've heard you say before at different talks that Parkinson's isn't just in this substantia nigra with dopamine deficiency. There's other, other things going on that right. uh, could be leading to this. Right, certainly. I think that's really the, the message of the second paper. The paper in Brain is uh, really um, harping on that idea, the idea that it's not just um, dopamine and not just the substantia nigra, but uh, the adjacent area, which is called the VTA, ventral tegmental area. Uh, that particular area also has dopaminergic neurons, and those neurons uh, project to areas of the brain where, uh, which controls wanting and liking. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh, when you crave for a certain fruit or uh, chocolate or sex or something like that, when you crave for it, uh, the part of the brain that lights up is controlled by dopamine from what we call the VTA, ventral tegmental area, which is right next to the substantia nigra. So when somebody has Parkinson's disease and they have deficiency of dopamine, we replace it with dopamine-like substances. And it's thought that inappropriate simulation of those additional areas that are wanting and liking areas is what causes all the problems uh, that is associated with, for example, the dopamine agonist, what we call dopamine dysregulation syndrome, where people who take, for example, uh, ropinarol or primipexol, uh, meropex and requip, sometimes have uh, excessive uh, interest in gambling, sex, uh, food, uh, etc. So in this paper, which looked at apathy, they are saying that that pathway is not the one that is playing a role because if that was the case, then if you got optimal dopamine, which is under well-controlled uh, situations, then your apathy should get better, and it didn't. So they're arguing that uh, it has to be other hormones and the hormone serotonin is produced in a different area, which is called the rafe nucleus. Rafe nucleus is also close to the substantia nigra, but it's different. And it has uh, projections into other parts of the brain. So they are arguing that, indeed, it might be the serotoninergic system. And there's another system which we call acetylcholine system. And that comes from a different area of the brain. Um, and those two hormones may actually be more impl implied uh, in uh, apathy and that medications that work on these two areas may be more important in somebody who is very apathetic. Um, this also becomes relevant for DBS. So people who are doing deep brain stimulation surgery have argued that um, some patients who undergo DBS and their dopamine medicines are stopped, um, they become apathetic. And this has been a problem. Uh, for example, there's a research study that looked at um, how many people 
who undergo DBS keep their jobs? How many of them quit working? And um, paradoxically, one would have thought that if they had DBS and they had good recovery of motor function, they'll continue working. But it turned out that people who undergo DBS, many of them actually got out of the workforce. And this even happened in young people, young onset Parkinson patients, patients who were below the age of 60, who have had Parkinson's disease in sufficiently bad that they underwent deep brain stimulation surgery, they actually quit working within a year or two after the DBS in this particular study. So people started asking, is that because they became apathetic? They became sort of, eh, I don't need to work. Why do I need to work? There's no motivation to continue to work. Um, not true depression, but just an apathy, apathy. And there is a paper, actually there are two papers that argue that DBS patients who also got their dopamine restored, they took, started taking their Parkinson medicine again, felt more um, up to it to go back to work or join the workforce um, as, as an example, or became less anhedonic. So people have argued in the past that especially from the DBS literature, where people actually stopped their Parkinson's medicine or reduced their Parkinson's medicine, they became apathetic because their dopamine was not restored sufficiently. This paper argues that, no, that's not the case. Dopamine alone is not sufficient. You also need serotonin. And perhaps modulators of serotonin are equally important, especially if they have a little bit of depression. Treating that depression aggressively may actually kick both these evils, both the depression and the apathy, both will go away. And we need to focus on that type of treatment. I hope this gives you a perspective. On, on, yeah. yeah. So this sounds like it's a, a lead in to talk about how people should be treated early instead of people saying, like, I'm okay. I'm just going to wait till I can't function. Then I'll go to the doctor, get on medicine because I don't want to be on medicine forever. And I don't have a job that I work in a warehouse and, I just lift boxes, so I'm, I'd be okay. By, by treating it late, you can end up having ap- apathy, it sounds like. Right. Um, so there's, it's a complex question what you asked, and I, but I think the answer is very simple. Yes, early treatment, early intervention is very, very important. And it's very important in many different ways. First of all, early diagnoses and seeing the doctor and seeking the doctor will allow the patient and the caregiver to realize that Parkinson's has many dimensions, many aspects that you may not be aware of at all. Like, for example, many people don't realize that sleep can be disturbed in Parkinson's disease. Constipation can be early in Parkinson's disease. Lack of smell can be a problem. Um, The other GI dysfunction can be a problem. Uh, Apathy can be a problem. Depression can be a problem. And many of these things, lesser known facts about Parkinson's disease, uh, not very clear to the general public. So early intervention, seeing the doctor, and at least realizing that there's a problem would make it easier for the patient and the caregiver to know whether they should be treated or not. So that's the first thing. So early recognition is important, very good. Second, early intervention. When should you intervene? Some of the uh, inconveniences are very easily treatable. And we all have talked about this before, like, for example, constipation, is fairly easy to treat. Sleep disturbances are relatively easy to treat in the early stages of the disease. Um, And even apathy and mild depression, which may really create havoc in a relationship, uh, a long-term husband-wife relationship, you could have apathy really interfering with lots of things, uh, just day-to-day function, uh, social behavior, 
personality change that interferes with um, general well-being, romance, and the likings and feelings of each other could be easily impacted by small little things, small little behavioral changes. And these can easily be fixed and fixed with using very tiny amounts of medicine. And uh, sometimes some behavioral modifications may also work out. But none of these medicines are addictive. None of them are you going to be hooked onto. None of these things are going to create an uh, issue of long-term toxicity or problematic uh, other complications later in life. So given that many of these things are relatively easy to fix, relatively quick and, you know, less problematic, the toxicity is not that much, it's, it doesn't make any sense to delay treatment. And then finally, the last but not the least important thing is that we're learning more and more that early treatment, especially with some of the newer medications, may actually slow down progression of disease. Um, this is not a 100% guaranteed thing, but at least there's indications from some of the treatments that are available, especially the monovinoxidase B inhibitors like salicylene, rasagiline, and the new hit-of-the-block Zadago, uh, these medicines appear to have some disease modification properties. Although, again, it's not uh, written in stone and it's not a you know, uh, piece of gold that you can uh, put in Fort Knox. Still, uh, there is an indication that this early treatment with some of these medications may actually slow down progression of disease. So for all three reasons, early recognition and making sure that families know all about the disease, uh, early treatment or intervention that may make your life dramatically better. And third, and most importantly, it might slow the progression of disease for all three reasons, seeking care early and intervening and talking with the doctor and looking at your options early and choosing the right decision early is probably very important. I think that's because it's not just the shake. Yes, exactly. It's just not the shake. There's much more to Parkinson's than just the shake. Yes, correct. So you take somebody that obviously you want to take a caregiver or a spouse to the, your visit because just like that study showed, the, uh, the patient doesn't actually get the full story about the, the apathy or depression. Right. What is there to actually do for that patient? Let's say not for depression. Let's say they're already on an SSRI drug for depression, but they come in and they both agree that this apathy, what, what, is, what is there to do for that patient? Right. So sometimes, um, so two points that you make, and I think both are important points. So bringing spouse or other loved ones, uh, a child or a good friend, or neighbor, or mom, brother, sister, whatever, who actually knows you well and has been watching you fairly closely is really, really important uh, to your doctor's visit. It's important for many different things, uh, not just apathy. Apathy is important because that's our topic today. But it's also important for depression, it's important for sleep disorders, and it's also important for cognitive impairment, or what we call MCI or depression. All these things, the caregiver, uh, the history that the caregiver gives or the spouse gives or the loved one gives is critical, necessary, and required uh, for the doctor to make a reasonable diagnosis. So it's, it's, it's very, very important that you bring the spouse along and you don't let them sit in the waiting area, you actually bring them into the room and they allow, you allow them to participate in the conversation. So I would strongly encourage that. So that's the first part. The second part of the question is, what do you do about apathy uh, beyond uh, just treating depression? And that's a good question. 
Um, the answer is somewhat complicated, but um, I'll try to simplify. So there's a relatively straightforward case of apathy uh, that a person who used to make a lot of decisions is no longer making those decisions. And we have clearly checked out that the person is not cognitively impaired. So the first step would be to go see your doctor and the doctor does a series of tests to make sure that your thinking and memory process is not impaired. And we might even send them to a neuropsychologist and the neuropsychologist does a more detailed assessment of your memory. And if they say, okay, the memory seems to be intact, but it's just pure apathy. And, and while they are checking, they also check for whether the depression is under good control. The depression is already manageable. And if during those testing, we find out that the depression, for example, the uh, depression inventory, BDI scores are still not optimal, then we might increase that medication that they are on. So common medicines that we give to Parkinson patients are Zoloft and Prozac and Lexapro. These are what we call SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They increase the amount of serotonin in the brain. Uh, and they are not addictive medicines. They are not something that you're going to get hooked on. And they can be increased safely to higher doses in most Parkinson patients. And by doing so, by increasing the serotonin levels, not only will the depression get a little better, but they can also get the apathy under control. The apathy might become better. Now, it has to be carefully done because some of the SSRIs can also reduce libido or sex drive. And that can be easily mistaken for apathy. It's like you don't like sex anymore kind of thing. So you have to be careful how that is titrated, but it can be titrated. And there are also other type of antidepressants that we can use if people have sexual dysfunction as a complications of the SSRI. We also mentioned um, cholinergic medications and some of the cholinergic medicines that you might know about are also antidepressants. So the example of it would be amitriptyline, and nortriptyline, which are uh, well-known tricyclic antidepressants from the previous era, but they also have anticholinergic uh, uh, effects. So sometimes using some of those type of medicines may also benefit uh, apathy, although again, the literature is somewhat controversial in this, but people have tried and seen whether those uh, medications can give you some benefit. Now, we also... um, talked a little bit about dopaminergic medicines. um, And we mentioned that it may not be all dopamine. But on the other hand, uh, the data from the DBS study, for example, suggests that if you did give higher doses of dopamine or at least optimize the dopamine in people who are low on dopamine, they seem to have uh, better control of their apathy and the apathy seems to disappear. So even though dopamine may not do the 100%, it might actually help a little bit. So if they are suboptimal in the dopamine, we might, uh, we might adjust, for example, the carbidopa levodopa dose, um, or we might add a small amount of uh, other medicines like anticapone or something to improve their amount of dopamine in the brain to uh, enhance their apathy. Beyond all this, um, social intervention, like uh, Warren mentioned earlier, whether it's through counseling, uh, through a professional uh, psychologist, who can actually work through some of the apathy issues and um, devise workarounds, behavioral modifications that might actually make people interested in uh, what they were not interested in before um, or uh, renew their interest from what they lost or decision-making skills that can be restored by doing some behavioral exercises. 
maybe the other way to get around apathy. But this is the area of a lot of research going on. Uh, we don't have the 100% the answer for these things, but certainly something uh, we need to look into more. Yeah, definitely. And uh, people have to remember, if they're 60 years old going to you, they, they've got a good 20-year lifespan left. So it's not that they, they start thinking that I don't care. I expect you to feel this way when I was 60. They have a whole – Parkinson's not going to take away their lifespan. I agree, 100%. I think that's well said. Okay. Do you have anything to follow up with, uh, Dr. Sue? Because this, this was a good, good broadcast. Uh, I think we, we touched upon all the main points. I think um, the listener might still not be 100% clear what's the difference between apathy and depression. And that's not unusual for many clients, many of my clients to not know that. But this is where I think you need to just seek uh, the input of a professional and have them decide which one is uh, the bigger issue. Is it apathy or whether it's depression or it's a combination of the two? Um, and it's not easy. It's not easy for families. It's not easy for caregivers. So um, I think seeking the professional help is probably the ultimate answer. Definitely. Great. Well, thanks, thanks for coming, Dr. Sue. Okay. Thanks for uh, having me. Bye. Bye.